I think that all of us have these very deep feelings of tenderness and sadness. If you don't discuss it, just eats away, eats away, eats away at you. I never talked about it with anybody. The greater damage done to me was keeping the secret. If I can be vulnerable, that will help other people be vulnerable. And it doesn't work for me to be silent. It makes me sick, literally, physically. I can't believe I'm going to tell you this story, but I'm going to tell you this story. If I could have known that you and I were alike, I would have had so much more hope. You realize you are not the only one. I think you can feel so supported just by knowing that you're not alone. From WMPG, I'm Dr. Ann Hallward, a psychiatrist in Portland, Maine, and this is Safe Space Radio, the show about the subjects we would struggle with less if we talked about them more. This season, we're revisiting some of our best shows from the past eight years. Today's interview, which first aired in 2012, is with actor Glenn Close. First known for her appearances in The World According to Garp and The Big Chill, she became an icon for her starring role in Fatal Attraction. Right now, Glenn is in Scotland filming a new movie with her daughter, and she'll be starring in Sunset Boulevard on Broadway starting in February of 2017. But today, I'm not talking with Glenn Close about acting, but about her work to reduce the stigma of mental illness. Glenn became interested in this issue because of her sister, Jessie, who has struggled with mental illness since childhood. Their family didn't recognize what was going on and didn't find a way to help Jessie. And as you'll hear in this interview, Glenn has carried remorse for the ways that they all let her down. I think many of us who are older siblings can relate to this feeling of realizing as an adult the extent to which we either actively thwarted a younger sibling or unwittingly dismissed and rejected them. I too have felt a lot of remorse for the way I ignored my younger sister as she was growing up. I was the one telling stories at the dinner table and she was the one listening quietly. Later, I recognized how this felt to her, that she wasn't getting any attention because I was getting it all. Of course, no single person is fully responsible for how a family dynamic plays out. It's a complex system and everyone plays a role. No one is in complete control and certainly not a child. Even so, it's common to look back at the roles we played in our siblings' lives and wish we'd acted differently or at least recognize certain things a lot sooner. Today's conversation with Glenn Close is about mental illness and stigma on a societal scale, but it's also about an adult looking back at her family's story, seeing the way her sister's needs were overlooked, and working to make amends. Here's my conversation with Glenn Close. Welcome to Safe Space, Glenn. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Tell me first about your sister, about who she is. I'd like to hear a little bit about her separate from her illness. Yeah. Um, Jessie is uh, my youngest sister. She lives in McAllister, Montana. Uh, we all grew up in Connecticut, but all of us except me are now out west. Jess is a writer, and she's had a book published, and she is a poet. And she's a mother of three wonderful kids. And she has always been in my life a, a source of real wonder and inspiration. When she was little, she was incredibly original and funny. And I think I, I always felt that I was her custodian in a way. I, I always felt she was a special spirit. 
And when you say custodian, what, what does that mean? I always kind of felt instinctively that I needed to look out for her. Our family went through many, many times where we were dispersed, and Jesse did not have an optimum childhood as far as being surrounded with family. That's something that I, I still feel, you know, there's, there's, I, I, I'm, I'm very sorry for that. But, but even with all that the dispersion and kind of uh, lack of cohesion in my family, I always felt um, there was something in me. For most of my life, there's a big gap that it didn't happen, but I felt that I always wanted, you know, that I wanted to make sure she was okay. Mm-hmm. So you're the protective older sister. Yeah, not, not you know, we'll see. Well, I mean, we'll talk about that, but uh, that was my instinct. But there was a lot of stuff that, that came between that you know, I see. for a number of years in our lives. Tell me a little bit about how, I understand Jesse has been diagnosed with bipolar disorder, and tell me a little bit about how that has expressed itself in her, because bipolar disorder can look so different in, so, in different people. How has that illness affected her? Well, she was always considered the wild one. My family had no knowledge or vocabulary for mental illness, so it never, with all Jesse's behaviors, and uh, it never was even brought up that maybe she was suffering from some sort of mental disorder to her great detriment. She walked out of school when she was in ninth grade and never went back. We could have lost her so many times. along the way. Because she took Um, risks or because she was suicidal or both? She was suicidal. She tried to kill herself twice. Again, that did not alert anything in my family except get a hold of yourself, pull up your socks. And then she just did drugs. She was uh, an alcoholic, you know, very destructive relationships. She went through five husbands. She moved her her and her youngest child 12 times in eight years. She was always getting you know, new cars and all that kind of thing, you know. She was just a, she seemed to be a very, I mean, to put it mildly, a restless, unsettled soul. And so here you are, you're in a family that's educated, has access to resources. Your sister is clearly struggling to leave school at ninth grade and so on. And you said she was sort of labeled the wild one, and but never thought of as possibly having a mental disorder to, to her detriment. How do you understand that this got missed? That it wasn't seen for that? It's for very hard to understand. Um, I think at, at most of that time, my my father was in Africa. They went to Africa in 1960, and that was the beginning of Jesse kind of being shunted from one group of people to another. She at one point came to Africa, was incredibly unhappy there, and they sent her home. She then married when she was 16 to somebody who was abusive to her. There was just a total disconnect in our family. I was going to college, and after that I started was starting my career, and we didn't have any kind of tradition in our family of checking up on each other. We just were all spread out all over the place, and my the connection I had with my parents was letters. My mother would come back periodically to kind of check up on Jess, but when you look back, it was a shocking situation. It was shocking. And I think, I know my father has passed, but my mom, I know, is it's something, you, you know, I think she now realizes exactly what the cause of some of that was. You know, I think it's very, it's a huge regret, as, as one would imagine. 
for me, as, as I was kind of in college, which was like water on the desert for me, you know, it was a time in my life where I started really kind of coming alive, and, and then I went straight from college into a career. Again, I was disconnected from my family. You know, it was very dysfunctional. So part of what I'm hearing is that Jesse sort of fell between the cracks. Everybody was so busy. Your parents were in another continent that her cries for help in some ways, her, the evidence of her suffering kind of got dismissed. She did. She did definitely fall between the cracks. Do you think that stigma about mental illness played a role, too, in having her be missed? I mean, was there a sense of not wanting to bring her to a psychiatrist or even think of it in those terms? I think, yes, I think stigma was huge. I think I remember my mom saying that, that at one point uh, she had gone to a psychiatrist and she had basically kind of run out because it just was frightening to her and this guy was obviously not hooked into what was really going on with my mom, you know. Um, mm-hmm. We know now that not every psychiatrist is right for every person, but back then, that must have been the 50s, you just, and where my parents grew up, where I grew up, it just wasn't done. You didn't do that. You just, it just wasn't an option. And that's, the good news is, of course, is that's changing so much now. We still have such a long way to go, but that the stigma of going to a psychiatrist, at least in some parts of this country, seems to have lessened considerably. Yeah, but the, the other amazing thing is that my mom's half-brother uh, shot himself. And, um, yeah, so there was a lot of obvious serious depression, a lot of alcoholism, but it was kind of, you know, in the Connecticut society that my parents grew up in, the cocktail party was a very accepted part of the day, and people looked the other way if, if somebody went over the line and got maybe a little bit drunk, but it was very much accepted, and I think there was a lot of alcoholism, and it, nobody, you know, again, it just was not a dumb thing to go and air your private troubles or thoughts with a stranger. Even really with neighbors, what's been so striking in this series is how many people grow up with mental illness in their family and never told anyone and worked went to great lengths to conceal it and suffered greatly as a result because there was so little support. Yeah. Let me come back to you. I mean, what I hear is that you had this instinct, you sensed that she needed tending and wasn't getting it. But you were, of course, like any older sister who's gone away to college and is starting their career, you were elsewhere. And how would you say that that having a sister with mental illness uh, has made an impact on your life, Glenn? Well, I think it's impacted my life profoundly in that I'm constantly aware of what I wasn't aware of at a time in, in her life when Jessie was incredibly in need of, of help. And uh, the fact that she wasn't diagnosed until she was, I think it was 45, again, is just shocking. And and all the suffering, you know, that not only her, but her children went through. I almost hear your remorse in your voice. Oh, huge. I have huge remorse about that. Mm -hmm. I have huge remorse about it. So I understand that you and Jesse together decided to start an organization, Bring Change to Mind, that's devoted to reducing stigma for mental illness. And I'd love to hear the story of how you came up with that idea. Did, was it your idea? Was it hers? Did you, were you, how did you talk about it together, and how did that go? Well, first, to, to go back a little bit further, it was a summer 
and I was at my mom's house where I am right now in Wyoming, and Jess was here. I remember where it was, where it was out on the driveway, and she came up to me. She said, I need help. I can't stop thinking uh, suicidal thoughts. And I took her in to talk to mom, and her son, Kalen, had been at McLean Hospital. He had left by then. He was there for two years. And so because we knew McLean, because they had done such, I think they probably saved Kalen's life. Kalen is schizoaffective. The plan was made to take Jess to to McLean, and, and I was the one who did that. I went with her and checked her in and sat with her, and, and that was the beginning of her recovery. So I think because there had been so much unknowingness, really, in our family, cause, and so much disconnect with what was was going on all the time that Jess was, was ill. She came, you know, she, we talked about it, and she said it would be wonderful if you could do something for stigma, you know, and for mental illness. And at that point, I had, like anybody in my position, shown up for various very worthy causes on a regular basis. And I, and either it was you show up and get an award so, and they use you as kind of a lure to get people to come, right. or you give an award, or you just go as an act of presence. But, you know, there were certain nonprofits that I had shown up for. I'd been on the on the board of Sundance Institute for 16 years. And I, it, it just became a no-brainer for me that if the time that I give to nonprofit, it should be around mental illness. I have an authentic connection to it. I have a, two members of my family who are living with mental illness. And it was one way to use my celebrity to focus on the issue. That, that I knew would be my, my main way to really help, is just to help focus by speaking or being present at something. And then because it's very important to me to know who I'm around and who I'm going to work with, I, I kind of started searching for what outfit I wanted to be a part of. There are many, many, as you know, wonderful, wonderful organizations around mental illness. I didn't want to just be a, a letterhead, you know. I didn't want to just have to put on a fancy dress and show up at a, at a big event every year. I wanted to dig a little deeper than that. So I finally threw, a, you know, as often life just hands you things when you don't know it, but I'd, I'd gone actually on a trek in Bhutan, and on that trek I met a woman who had a global philanthropist organization, and in that organization was Anne May, um, who's a fantastic woman on the board of NPR, <laughs> uh, among many other things. And she was on the board of Fountain House, which is a, a place in New York where people living with mental illness have, it's almost like a, a clubhouse uh, set up. Members run it, it's called Fountain House. And there are eight different areas where they, they can learn enough in order to hopefully get a job, and then they're helped to get a job, and hopefully to eventually live independently. So it's very much about peers helping peers. It's not clinical. It's a, just a place of safety where people can go and, and be with people who are dealing with the same things that they're dealing. So I went and spent some time in Fountain House, and I volunteered. I cooked, I cooked in the kitchen at one point, and I worked in the horticulture uh, room, and I and I helped edit at their newspaper and was able to be shoulder to shoulder with people living with mental illness. You know, I had to kind of check out my own prejudice and stigma to make sure that it is something that I could, you know, totally embrace. And so that was a huge, huge um, 
time in my life, and then with uh, Ken Dudek, who's the president of Fountain House, and Ann May, um, and the ad agency who that we uh, that they had used, we decided that the best thing again was to do something for PSA, and we came up with the idea of that of our PSA, which is still playing in many places around the country. Let's describe that PSA because it's very inspiring, set in Grand Central Station in New York, and shows your sister wearing a T-shirt that says bipolar on it, and then it shows you with a T-shirt that says sister. And then all of a sudden, pairs of people all throughout the station wearing T-shirts with the name of a mental illness and then the name of a father, a mother, a brother, a friend, standing together in public, in the open, um, walking through the crowd and celebrating the relationship and celebrating that it's possible to really kind of claim this in a public way without shame. And it's very moving. I'd love to hear what kind of response you've gotten to it. Huge response, and it's still going. We had a wonderful partnership with the National Broadcasting Association Foundation, and through many of them, they, the local radio and TV, uh, they have placed, you know, our PSA. I think we have some, I think like $4 million worth of placement. And it's mm. still going strong because it's such a basic message. Yes. Um, we want to make other PSAs, and we will, but this one is, we wanted to make one that basically articulated what we were all about. And um, the fact that we were in Grand Central Station was just, it was amazing because if you think that one in four people is, is touched in some way by mental illness, and we were in Grand Central Station with hundreds of people passing by us, from 7 in the morning to 7 at night, 1 in 4. So it's a, uh, a demonstration of you never know who you're sitting next to in the train or who you're buying coffee next to or your newspaper or passing on the street. You know, 1 in 4 will be dealing in some way with mental illness. And, and my feeling is that should unite us and fit us more solidly together in the human condition mm. than be something that we have to secretive and ashamed of. You and many others have said that the stigma itself, the silence, can in some cases be worse than the illness itself. And that secretiveness you're speaking of now, tell me a little bit about what you mean when you say that. How is stigma worse than the illness itself sometimes? I have a prime example, my beautiful nephew, Kaylin, who got sick when he was 19, and he was kind of somebody that he's always the better of the group and the leader of the pack. And he was beautiful and funny and, and talented. And he got ill and lost all his friends. He became totally isolated. And the pain of that, hmm. when you think about it, when you put yourself in somebody's shoes, they're not only dealing with the learning of and suffering from something that comes out of the blue and trying to get from day to day but to lose all your friends on top of it, that's pretty cruel. And I think it also can it keep people from, if they think something's wrong, it can keep people from saying something or trying to get help because they, they think that they'll be out of the group, which every indication is that they will be, or they know that the, the danger is when they seek help and they get on meds that change your appearance and you're dealing with you know getting through an, a day, which can be very difficult. Then you become somebody strange and people fall by the wayside. Terrifying. I mean, I think that this is such a big reason that people don't 
come to psychiatrists is the fear of all those exact things. It almost can feel like it makes it more real. And the medications, while they can be absolutely life-saving, have so many difficult side effects. It's a very difficult road to walk. Yes, it is. And I, I have to say uh, that Kalen is in recovery. Um, he's married. He's an artist working in a studio and painting and building furniture. But he has not gotten back the kind of the groups of friends that he, he had. You know, I think, I don't know if that ever will happen. I can imagine it's hard to trust people again after that's happened to you once. Stigma, it ends up having this sort of terrible lasting effect because there's the stigma of his friends who presumably pulled away because they were frightened and didn't understand and had all sorts of prejudices and may have had genuinely disconcerting interactions with him. It's not, I don't know. But then the impact on him of how, you know, how how frightening it is to trust people again after you've been abandoned like that. So there's this terrible ongoing impact of that kind of loss. Oh, and I think there's you know that you're you're acting differently and you're looking differently, and that follows you everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, I know when he first came back from uh, the hospital, he would wear gl- dark glasses a lot, and we would know that he was feeling that he needed a place, a safe place, when he would put on those glasses. But I have to say, he, you know, both my sister and my nephew have been incredibly proactive with their illnesses they are able were able to articulate what was going on in their head which in some ways is more painful than just kind of taking it as it comes you know they've 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 worked hard at recovery and they're and they're living lives and impacting people in ways that i don't think they ever thought they could well the courage that your your sister's courage and coming forward and being so public with you is really very inspiring I remember, I remember talking to the Fountain House group and saying, you know, I can't do this without my sister because, number one, it wasn't me living with mental illness. It was her. And number two, it's about family, and um, you need to have the family involved. And so I, I remember making that call saying, would you be willing to out yourself publicly in a national campaign against stigma and I also asked Kaylin, both of them, and they both said yes, without hesitation. I remember looking in their faces when we arrived at 7 a.m. in the morning, Grand Central Station. It was a really a hot August day, and it's a very huge and echoey place. And that kind of sound can trigger things, certainly with Kaylin. And I, and I remember just looking in their faces and realizing how difficult this was, and they never hesitated. We tried to find as quiet a place as we could, (laughs) Um, but they ended up wearing their illness on their chest for the whole day, and um, and even that, I mean, (laughs) that's a a courageous act, and um, they have not stopped uh, advocating, and and they both are incredibly wonderful speakers, both Kaylin and Jesse. Two last things, Glenn, before we have to stop. One is, I know that you and Jesse together recently spoke at the Carter Center in Georgia, and that they have a whole new way of understanding the work that you and I are both doing, which is about reducing stigma. And they now are talking about it in terms of 
moving towards social inclusion. And tell me a little bit about that shift and what that means. Um, well, the kind of astounding piece of data that everybody in the research field mentions is that although people have gotten much more literate as far as mental illness is a disease like any other, and people can recover, as Jesse says, not cured, but recovered, <laughs> that has not budged stigma. People thought that if you could, you know, with medication and, and uh, recovery, that people would be accepted more. Well, that hasn't happened. Because at the heart of it, it's not about a medication. It's about whether people perceive someone living with a mental illness as a possible neighbor, a possible coworker, a possible person to date your son or your daughter, um, a possible friend. And that is what's going to make the difference. And the thing that I'm most interested in now is all the data it's not surprising that the best way to change somebody's attitudes and behavior about mental illness is for them to actually meet somebody living with it and in recovery. That's very powerful, and that can change somebody, you know, completely. How do we do that? I think we should keep on uh, doing whatever we can. Um, shows like this are phenomenal, and we'll make more PSAs, which people see them and they, they, it will give them pause, you know, food for thought, and maybe open up their minds a little bit. But then we have to really work on a grassroots basis, person-to-person, uh, family-to-family, community-to-community about social inclusion. And, uh, and I think that there's so many good people in this country um, doing incredible work within their communities, and we just have to add mental illness to that. They've done so much in England, New Zealand, Australia, Canada. They're way ahead of us, and I think we can learn very much from them with campaigns and programs that they're pioneering. In closing, Glenn, I'm really struck as I've been listening to you today, thinking back to your you know, the remorse that I heard in your voice around not having been there more for her when she was growing up. And I'm so struck. I didn't know prior to today that it was Jesse who said to you, please, Glenn, do something, you know, do something to reduce stigma. And as I'm hearing you, what I'm struck by is that in, in giving you the chance to do this, that she's really given you a gift, you know, that she's offered you this chance to give her something and give everyone with mental illness, something and and I, I wonder, does it does it help with some of that remorse to know that you can be doing this now? It does because you hope that what you know we're doing will prevent the kind of situation that Jesse was in. Yeah, you know, and that you won't have somebody not do, you know not diagnosed until she's forty five, um, and all the debris that she left behind her. And I, yeah, I think I think that's it is. It's a lovely way the way you put that. I actually hadn't thought of that, and um, I think it's right. I think you're right. 
I think it's a way I can give back to my sister and to um, and with her, you know, help uh, families that might be in the same situation as ours was. Glenn, on that note, I want to thank you so much for being my guest, and I want to invite people to visit Bring Change to Mind on the web. It's an inspiring site where people can share their own stories, take a pledge to reduce stigma, watch videos, see the PSA, join a large community of people online who are working in their own communities to reduce stigma. It's a wonderful organization that you've created. Thank you so much, Glenn. Thank you for having me. That was my 2012 conversation with actor Glenn Close. When it first aired, it was part of a series of interviews about mental illness in the family. If you want to hear more of the shows from that series, or any of our other past shows about the subjects we hide, visit our website at safespaceradio.com. While you're there, please subscribe to our email list to find out about each week's new show as soon as it's released. Also, leave us a comment. I love hearing from you. My thanks to Gabe Graben for producing the show and to Jim Russell for being our editorial advisor. 